We're in the smack dead in the middle of our, of, our, of our series on doctrine. This is week seven, and we're talking about the implications of the doctrine of the incarnation. And what, what happens there, as you turn to Philippians chapter two, is, is when we talk about the incarnation normally, it's, it's usually done around Christmas time. We usually come out of one of the gospel texts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and we talk about the nativity scene and, and Jesus coming, um, conceived of the spirit, born of the virgin woman, Mary, and, and we, we sing joy to the world, which is so true. Um, but what we wanna do, do this, this morning is not look so much at the birth of Christ, Though, though um, we have great scriptures, like in John, when it says the word became flesh, ultimately, ultimate reality, God himself stepped in and he drew near. But we're going to look at the implications. And, and, and I'm just going to give you the so what in the beginning. And the so what of the message is because Christ, because God himself, the second person of the Trinity, put on flesh and humbled himself, our response to that should be to love God through tangibly serving others. Ultimately, to glorify God, love God, love our neighbor, and the way that we will show our love for God, who, who we can't touch and we can't feel, is by tangibly serving the needs of others. And when we see um, the Apostle Paul in Philippians talking about the incarnation and its implications, it's so clear here that, that we see that Christ himself was a servant. He says in, in the Gospel of Mark that the Son of Man, speaking of himself, didn't come to be served, but to serve. And, and, and I think a message like this, an implication of the incarnation, is perfect for us as a congregation, as a church in Tempe, because we have just massive opportunities of which we as a body can begin to serve one another, continue to serve one another, and then serve those who are not a part of the flock. In fact, when I, be, when I became a Christian, um, one of the songs that this church that I was going to used to sing had a line. The song wasn't any good, but the line in the song was perfect. It said, let what we do in here fill the streets out there. And I, and I used to, that resonated with me because I always thought, like, how about if we worship in here, the, the way that we come together and we unpack scriptures and we say hello to one another and we wave to people and we pray for people's children, how about we say, take that same joy, the way we celebrate the remembrance of our Lord Jesus Christ through communion and, and take that to our workplaces and take it to the parks and to the recreation as we take it to our families in word and deed to speak of Jesus and his love and also to resemble and show his love that he's given us to the people around us. And I just wonder what the community around us would look like. And this, this thought wasn't a thought that I just had. In fact, the more and more that I grew in my faith and I learned the history of Christianity, that the first and second and third century Christ Christians, they live like this. In fact, historian and sociologist Randy Starks talking about early believers said this, Early believers made their communities a lot more bearable. Even in the face of great persecution and martyrdom, they took care of each other and their neighbors. They loved one another. They took care of each other when they were sick. They shared their wealth and relieved economic distress. When plagues hit ancient cities, Christians were the ones who stayed behind and took care of the sick and dying. The new faith was also very attractive for women, a highly vulnerable group in the Roman society. He's saying there was something of the nature of this Jesus, this God who came in and took on flesh and entered into a broken society, entered into poverty, and in response to his life, his death, and his resurrection, they lived different lives, not just for the community within. In fact, the church is the only institution that exists not only for its members, but for those who don't belong. Starks continues and he says, Christians, believers, offered hope and charity to the homeless and impoverished, 
To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fires, earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. It it was all in response to Jesus. There was something of the nature of the incarnate Jesus Christ that made them respond in the way that they did. And so for the next three weeks, we're entering into a three-part mini-series within a series. And, and today we'll look at the implications of Jesus becoming flesh. And next week we'll look at the, cro- the cross in which Jesus died. And that third part will be the implications of the resurrections. And so the place that we'll start now is in Philippians chapter 2. Um, the context here is this is the Apostle Paul who's speaking to a church. He's writing from a prison. I'm speaking to the Christians that are gathering together at Philippi, a city just near Rome. And then he, he's, he's talking to them, and the, and the overarching theme of this letter is encouragement. And he's encouraging them to live as Christians, to live in humble obedience in the same way that Jesus Christ himself humbled himself. And so he, he begins here in Philippians chapter 2. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, I got to pause there because the first three words of chapter two says, so if there could also mean therefore. And whenever you come to your Bibles and you see a therefore, you have to ask, what is a therefore, therefore? The writer is trying to connect something of which he said to something he's about to say. And so if you jump in your, in your, in your Bible up to verse 27 in chapter one, he says this, only let your manner of your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear that you are standing firm, here it is, one spirit and one mind, striving side by side of faith through the gospel. So what Paul is saying is, in response to the gospel, this is what I want for you. Again, chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement because of the gospel in Christ, any comfort of love, any participation of the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full of one accord of one mind. And that's what Paul is saying is, if you're a Christian, if you've seen Jesus and you've experienced his work through his life and his death, his resurrection, if you've received the spirit as he ascended and sent forth, be in unity. Be of one mind. And he's speaking of oneness here, not sameness. Meaning you're going to have people in a congregation like ours that are completely different. They vote different. They act different. They shop at different places. And that's fine. People who are theologically different, doctrinally different. And yet what he's saying is agree on the essentials that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. And if that's the case, be of one mind. And then after here, What Paul begins to do now is gives us some imperatives, some kind of do's and don'ts when it comes to responding to a life that follows and loves Jesus. In verse verse 3, he says, do nothing from rivalry or self-conceit. He stops there, and he says, when he says do nothing from rivalry, what that literally means is don't try to get ahead in life by stepping on people. The, the rivalry there is, is, is not a, a fun rivalry or a good rivalry, like an ASU, U of A rivalry, but it's hatred, which is actually like an ASU, U of A rivalry. So that was a bad illustration. So not like that. Um, this, this rivalry that he's saying is you trying to get ahead by exposing people. And he's not saying don't be competitive in the workplace. He's not saying don't, don't commit to Excellence, don't work hard. In fact, as Christians, we should be competitive. We should take the gifts and the resources that God has given us, and we should work hard at those things. But what he's saying is don't try to get ahead 
by exposing people, by stepping on people. This happens in the marketplace. Instead of believers in Jesus Christ taking a biblical worldview where Jesus is Lord over all things into the workplace and submitting to him no matter where they're at, we, we, we actually function out of a Darwinistic worldview that says survival of the fittest in the dog-eat-dog world and I have to get ahead of you because that's the way business is done. Paul says, no, no. And then this also happens socially and relationally and we do it through gossip. The, the very reason why we gossip is we expose the flaws and the wrongdoings of others in order to make our, ourselves feel better. They don't deserve this because look at what they've done. Therefore, I'm the rightful candidate. Paul's saying, don't live like that. Don't, don't do anything out of rivalry to step on people, to use people ultimately for your good, to use their flaws, not to speak truth into them and point them to Jesus, but to use their flaws in order to make yourself look better. And, and the second part, he says, rivalry or conceit is similar. Conceit has the ideal of you looking to yourself as more important than you think, that you, that you think you're more important than you ought to. Meaning when you look at yourself in the mirror, you, you think you're better than what you really are. Now, there's a balance here. You, you do matter. We learned about that when we looked at the doctrine of the image of God. Because you were created in the image of a holy God, you matter. You have purpose. You have dignity. God has a plan for you. And yet, we also look at the fall that we've all sinned and fall short from the glory of God. So though you matter, you don't matter that much. You, you matter, but you don't matter that much. So Paul continues, and he says, do not, do not do these things out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. So, so he said in humility, meaning humbling yourself, go to people and count them as more significant or more important than yourself. Now, again, this is not the false humility that says, oh, I'm a loser, I'm nothing, you're better than me, and you're really better than that person, and whatever it is. That's lying. Paul doesn't say, okay, to be humble, start lying. He would never say that. If, if you're good at something, you're good at something. Just don't flaunt it. What, what he's saying is just take the person and just disregard their position, their status, their abilities— and then treat them as more significant than yourself. Meaning, line up just an inch under them and serve them and love them. And, and so the best way to illustrate this is think about people in your life who are important. People in your life who are significant. It could be your spouse. It could be your boss. It could be um, people you look up to in culture. Just if they walked into the room, how do you treat those people? Chances are we hang on every word that they say. We listen to them, whether we like them or not. Um, we, we, we listen intently. We open doors for them. We create our schedule. Or we move people off our schedule in order to meet with them when they say that they want to meet. When they call us, we answer. We leave our families. We answer. Or, or when they leave messages, we call them right back. When they email, you know what it's like. You make time and you make room in order to be with these people. Oftentimes, these people benefit you. If it's your boss, maybe it's because you don't want to see him as a bad employee. If it's your hero, whoever, whatever the famous athlete or person is, because you, you want to be around, there's something that they can do for you. If it's your spouse, it's because you love her, because you love him. Maybe, right? What, what Paul is saying is, don't stop treating them that way. That's how you treat people who are important and significant. But he's saying, also treat the people you really don't like. The people who are needy. The people who you just ignore and you walk by, you see them and you go, oh, I'm not going to look at them in the eyes because I know what they're going to ask. Paul is saying, make room for them. Make time for them. Um, clear out your schedule to hear from them. Will it cost you? Yes. That's why he says, do it in humility. It, it's not easy. It's, it's easy to, to, to serve people who are important because we can get something from them. What Paul is saying is treat people the same. 
And treat them as more important than yourselves, meaning don't treat them according to their position or their worthiness or their status or what they can do for you, but treat them according to the fact that, again, they are created in the image of God. They matter. So treat them the way that God treats you. He makes time for you. Paul goes on to say that this has to be done in humility. And on the flip side of that, he says, verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also in the interest of others. And I'm glad that Paul says not only to your own interest, because there's this ideal or thought in Christianity right now, in order to be godly, you got to sell all your possessions and be poor, live on the street, and then you can serve people. And somehow God looks at that lifestyle and said, that's more godly. The the reasoning behind it makes no sense to me, because if you're poor and you're living on the street, someone's going to have to help you. What, what Paul is saying is, don't just sell everything to the point where you have to be dependent upon others, but he's saying this, just take this mindset, just, just take this position and response to Jesus, and, and the same way that you look after your welfare, think about someone else. And the same way that you look after where you're going to send your kids to school, think about, the ki- think about other kids and where they're going to go to school. And the same way you think about providing for your family, which are godly things, just think about ways in which God has blessed you to be a blessing to provide for others. This, is, this, this has the ideal of us serving and saying that everything that God has given me is an undeserved gift. My job, my family, my friends, my, my emotional stability, all those things I can use now to, to serve and, and love and bless my family, also to bless others. To, to, to take care of my interests, meaning have interests, have vacations, don't feel guilty because what God has given you, but in the same way, take those same things and think about others. And just don't think about them. Just don't pray for them, but actually enter in to bless them and to serve them and what's best for them. Now, two things with that. There will be some people that you'll look at their condition and you'll look at their status and you'll look at their position and you'll go to bless them and you'll go to serve them and, and, and what you think is best for them, they'll reject it. So you got to have a level of confidence to know what it means to bless other people. Example, you may go to a family that has two bucks left to their names. And what they want to do with this two bucks that you're going to give them, ultimately, the two bucks they have, they want to buy soda and a bag of Funyuns, right? And they got children of three. And you're saying, no, with the two bucks that you have, you should buy rice and you should buy beans. It lasts longer. They may look at you like you're crazy, but you have to be bold enough to not just give in to what you know is going to hurt them. Friends doing drugs, you know it's going to hurt them. Don't say, hey, here's 10 bucks, get high. That's what you really wanted. That's your interest, right? You've got to treat them the way that they should be treated, right? But be ready for them to say no. And on the flip side of that, just because you want to serve people and just because you want to bless people, the means and the way of which you try to bless people may not be what's best for them. It may not be what they need. Um, so often, we, we, we look at people on the side of the street or homeless people, and we, we, we throw them some, you know, some Cheetos or something like that, and they're like, I'm not even hungry. I really needed socks. And so the only way we're going to find out is if we get near them. And in the same way that God put on flesh and he entered in, the only way we're going to know how to bless and serve people is to understand their situations because many people that we serve and bless, they're not like us. In the same way that God was not like us and yet he entered in. And so there's, there's a really good book called When Helping Hurts, and it speaks of evangelical, middle-class, white Christians that go and try to serve people in all the good intentions, but what they end up doing in the long run is hurting them 
because we don't know them. It's it's drive-by service, and that's not what Jesus did. Jesus didn't fly over the world and drop off goodies. He entered in. He took on flesh to get to know people, to, to learn the language, to learn the culture. That's what it means to incarnate. So when Paul says, don't just look to your interests, but in the same way, take that same position and say, and the same way I provide for my family, and the same way I provide for my kids, and the same way that I provide for myself, I'm going to take that same effort to see how we can bless, how we've been blessed by God to be a blessing to others. Amen? Now, what I have to say is this, is does that make us uniquely Christian? Does, does being able to not step over people in order to get the right places and not gossiping for, through people and exposing people's weakness in order to make ourselves look good, um, being able to serve people and treat them as important, does that make us Christian? Meaning, does that make us right before God? In fact, do you have to have the spirit of Christ in you to do those things, to, to in essence, be a good citizen? Absolutely not. In fact, there are many people in this world that do not profess Jesus Christ, who are not Christians, who would say they're atheists at best, if not agnostic, and yet they do those things way better than us. There are people that, that believe in some form of Jesus, but even though it's completely wrong and manipulated, they live throughout our whole region, and yet they're the nicest people in the world. And when it comes, we know them. And there's nothing you can fault. You look at their activities, you look at their behavior, and you say, that is what I'm supposed to be doing. And yet, those of us who have Jesus Christ, we really don't do those things. Those of us who have the living spirit in us, we really don't do them. That's what I'm saying. You don't have to be a Christian. That doesn't make you right before God. I think I've shared this story before, but when I became a Christian, um, I was really excited because I had a friend of mine, Katie, who was like the best person that I knew, and I was like, oh, now I can invite her to these Bible studies I'm going to. So weeks, several weeks went by, and I kept inviting her, and she kept coming. Finally, we're walking into Office Max over there on Roland Broadway, and, and she goes, hey, I asked you a question. Why do you keep inviting me to these Bible studies? And I was like, well, because you're like the only Christian that I know. And she goes, Christian? What makes you think I'm a Christian? Now I'm like, uh... I don't know, probably because you went to those Bible studies the last three weeks with me. <laughs> and I said, you're a Christian. You're like, you're, like, you're like the best person I know. You never swear. You don't do bad things. I've never seen you drunk. And she goes, yeah, what, what part of my life made you think that I was a Christian? And I said, well, why not? And she goes, well, why are you a Christian? And to me, and my understanding of the gospel was, I'm a Christian because I used to get drunk, and I used to smoke, and I don't do those things anymore, and now I do good things. Jesus saved me. To me, that was the gospel. And she goes, see, that's what I don't get with you Christians. She goes, you see, I've never done drugs. I've never been drunk. Um, I, I give my money away. My family is really, really rich. And so she was a tennis player at ASU. And she goes, I get a new pair of tennis shoes every match. And so what I do with my old shoes is I send them down to an orphanage in Mexico. And over spring break, I drive down to that orphanage. I spend three or four days and I care for them. I don't cheat. I don't steal. I'm constantly trying to help people. The only reason I went to your Bible studies is because I like you. And I thought, hey, if this is a friend of mine, I'll do what he wants me to do. I, like, do I really need Jesus? Do I really need a savior? And, and my limited understanding of the gospel, I knew she needed a savior, I just didn't know why. Because my understanding of Christianity was, now that God has saved me, I do good things. My understanding of Christianity is that Jesus went to the cross, he took on flesh, he lived the life that we should have lived, and he died the death that we should have died, so that we can have good behavior. And when I, when I asked Katie, I, I said, what, what, why do you do that then, if you don't believe in God? She goes, well, the last thing I want to do is to be seen as someone who doesn't care. That's just selfish. So, so when it boiled down to it, the reason why her behavior was the way that it was, it came down to her not wanting to be seen as someone who didn't care. 
And, and, and so her actions looked great. Her, her, her behavior was awesome. It was, in fact, in line with what the Apostle Paul is, is laying down here, which would be implications of seeing a God. But, but her motivation was all wrong. When the Apostle Paul lays down what seems to be these do these and don't do these and that Christianity in itself is about do's and don'ts, that's not what he's saying. He's saying there has to be an undergirding foundational motivation that's not about what people think. And and, in fact, Jesus himself talks about this. He says there will be people who come to church week after week who give and who pray and and, and who get baptized and they, they serve, they serve so much. And yet on that day when he comes back in Matthew chapter seven, he says they will say to him, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? Didn't we show up faithfully? Wasn't our obedience impeccable? And he's gonna say, depart from me. I never knew you. Those are some of the scariest words as a Christian who is striving and trying to do what the Bible says to do. But the motivation is all wrong. And so, no, you don't have to be a Christian to do those things. You you don't have to have the Spirit of God to do right things. Paul is not talking about behavior. He's trying to get at the motivation of a behavior. And once we get at the motivation and have the right motivation, now we'll treat others with the respect that they deserve. We'll give ourselves away. And the only way we do that is what Paul says in in, in verse 5. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul's saying, don't do it so that the other people around you would say, man, look how good they are. They care so much. That Redemption Tempe Church, man, they care for our city. Though that would be great, he says, don't let that be that motivation. Because what if they say, you don't care? Do you walk away? He says, the ultimate motivation is this. Look to Jesus. Look at him. Look at him, the one who knew no sin, who became sin. He who was rich became poor, who left the comforts of heaven, not because we were worthy, we were unworthy, not because we were deserving, we were undeserving, but because of love. And the only motivation that will get us out of ourselves to not just do religious duties and check the box, but to be faithful is if we look to Jesus. Paul says in verse 5, this is the mind that we have in Christ that, that we've been given the mind of Christ, this, that, that by belief in Jesus Christ and looking, him, looking to him, looking at his example, looking at his life, what he's done on behalf of us, as we gaze through the gospel, now our motivation changes. And we begin to serve one another. The, only, the way we enter into humility, because we realize we matter, but we don't matter that much. We realize what we've been given to us is grace. We deserve wrath. God gave us love. Therefore, in response to that, now we go to love people. Now we go to serve people. Not for human approval, but because we got the approval, we have the approval that we'll never lose, the approval that matters the most. And that's that God came, that God took on flesh to love us. Amen? Paul, Paul what I love here so much is that he, he bursts from talking of instructions and imperatives that, that he bursts into praise. Um, the next few verses here is what is known as the hymn of Christ. And so though it's very theological, this was a song that was sang, that, that Paul erupts into praise. I mean, he's talking about do this and don't do that. And then he gives us the motivation. And when he begins to talk about Jesus, he begins to worship on the spot. In talking about who Christ is and what Christ did, he begins to worship on the spot. I I believe that this is a good example for us when we begin to talk about Jesus. There's not this lackluster uh, approach to Jesus, but there should be this joy because of what he's done, because of what he's doing and what he promised to do. In verse 6, he says this, speaking of Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider it equality to be grasped 
Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What he's saying is, though in the form he was God, meaning just Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, he pre-existed before creation. He's always existed. He's equal with God. That, that word form is the Greek word morphe. He is God, and yet when he took on flesh, he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, at first glance, that seems really weird. But what that means is this, though he had divine privileges and though he had divine power when he was here on earth, he didn't use those privileges, he didn't use that power for himself, but he used it to empower others. He he didn't say, I'm going to get the first person in line. He he didn't pull out, so to say, the God card and get all the privileges of saying, just worship me, worship me, and worship me. But the way that he got people to worship him is in response to the love that he had for the Father, he used his power to bless and to empower and to serve others. A clear example of that in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus, fully man, was was feeling the hunger pangs and temptation. He was hungry. He hadn't eaten for 40 days. And he's in the wilderness, and he's tempted by Satan. And Satan says, oh, you're hungry. Here's some stones. You're God. You can turn those stones into bread. And he could have. But he says, no, man shall not live off bread alone, but by the very words of God. And then later, when there's 5,000 people plus who are hungry, his disciples come to him and say, hey, these people got to go home. We can't feed them. He goes, well, yeah, we can. What do we have? Two fish, five loaves of bread. And he fed five, over 5,000 people with some left over because he's God. But he didn't consider equality a thing to be grasped, meaning he just didn't use his status for himself. And, and I think for us, that, that, that's, that, that's very applicable because we have privileges as children. We've been given adoption. We've been given the spirit. We've been given what we call Christian freedoms, the freedom not to be in sin. And yet, what we have to do with whatever those Christian freedoms are, we have to look like and act like Jesus. We, we have to come and say, is what I'm doing and my Christian freedoms, first and foremost, is this sin explicitly in your word? And then, is it sinning against my conscience? And then from there, it's not just do what you want. You have to come to the next question, is God, does this bring you most glory? Does this bring you the most glory? And so when Jesus came, he he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. And he says in verse 7, but he made himself nothing, taken the form of a servant, and been born in the likeness of man. It says he made himself nothing, meaning he became a human. He's fully flesh. Though he's fully God, he's fully man. That's what it means that God is the incarnation, that he's incarnate. And that he says he made himself a servant. Now, the word that Paul used there is, is, is a bondservant, a slave. Meaning he did a slave, a, a slave and a bondservant and didn't own the shirt on his back, didn't own a house. He didn't have means. He was poor. And I think it'd be, it'd, be, it'd be interesting and good for us right now to draw out the implications, not theologically, but just experientially of Jesus being fully God and yet fully man. Jesus did not, he owned the clothes that he had, but yet he was poor. In fact, just like us and many of us, Jesus was born, right, virgin, virgin mom, and so he was born without a biological father here on earth, and so he knew the rumors and heard the rumors that, that people who really didn't know his mom saying that's not really Joseph's boy, the rest of the kids are his boy, but that's not that Jesus, that's not really his son, that's his mom, but that's not his son. So, so he understands what it means to be in this life, not having a biological father, but to cling to the heavenly father. Jesus knows what it's like, like us being born into the brokenness of this world, the limitations and the frailties of the body. He experienced suffering. He experienced pain. He experienced sadness. He was hungry, just like us. 
Jesus knew what it was like to have friends that would ultimately betray him, ultimately turn their back on him. He knew what it was like to have family members who didn't really get him, who didn't really understand why he lived the life that he did, just like us. And Jesus, not like many of us, knew what it was like to be poor. The Bible says that when Jesus was born, what was sacrificed for him were pigeons, which in the Old Testament was the cheapest, meaning the poorest of the poor, all they can sacrifice for their kids was a pigeon. And that's what happened with Jesus. Jesus says himself, the birds of the sky have their necks and foxes have their holes, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He, he, he was born in poverty in a poor, in a poor town. If you see Jesus, he had pigeons that were sacrificed for him. And when he, when he rode in the town, he rode in a borrowed donkey. And when he, when he had to Passover feast with his, with his disciples, it was in a borrowed room. And when he was buried in a tomb, it was a borrowed tomb. He knows what it's like to be poor. He knows what it's like to suffer injustice, just like us. And then the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 4, says that in every respect, Jesus Christ, like us, was tempted. Meaning whatever temptation that you have, whatever temptation that you battle through, whatever vices that you have that you struggle with on a daily basis, Jesus felt the tug of sin being fully man. And yet, not like us, he did not sin. And what Paul says is this this Jesus became obedient even to the point of death. So not like us, he went to the cross for us. This, this Jesus who, not like us, bore the wrath of God for us. Jesus understands what it's like because he's fully human. And yet, being fully God, he humbled himself to the point of death and died as a man, ultimately, to secure the salvation of his people. When the Bible says that God became flesh, it shows that the incarnation in itself, the overarching implication, is that the way that we bring glory to God is by tangibly serving others, and especially those not like us. It's by humbling in ourselves and entering into the lives of people who are not like us. The other day I was talking to a friend of mine, and, um, and she said, oh, you know, I don't go to Walmart. And I'm like, why, well, you, you, you're against the man or whatever? And she says, no, I just don't like the sketch people that are there. And I thought, I kind of like the sketch people that are there. But, 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 but in my mind, I was thinking like, yeah, if Jesus thought like that, none of us would be Christians. If Jesus decided not to move in a certain neighborhood, if Jesus decided not to get the needy people around him, if Jesus decided not to go to those people that would put his fam- family in danger, we wouldn't be Christians. We wouldn't know God. Because when Jesus became flesh, he showed us who God was and what God was like in human. He went to the sketchy people. He went to those who no one wanted to talk to and no one wanted to be with. He loved the unlovable. He redeemed the irredeemable. This was what Jesus did. He ultimately became vulnerable. I mean, he, he, here's a guy who came into this world as a baby. We just, we just did these baby dedications. These babies, as little as they are, they can't do anything for themselves. They're, they're totally dependent upon their parents. And so Jesus himself comes and entrusts himself to his father, but he also entrusts himself to a teenage woman. God being held, being burped, being fed by a teenage woman. He's vulnerable, and he enters in, and he has terrible friends. They're terrible, but he loves them, and he commits his life to them, even to the point of death. And so what are the implications of the incarnation? Real quick, two implications that I have. Two implications for us with two tangible means in which we can love them. Just two. The first one that we have is, um, is vulnerability and proximity. 
Just like I was saying that Jesus put on flesh and he entered into the lives of people who were not like him. There, there has to be a level of vulnerability that, that, that as Christians, that those of us now look into Jesus and a response to his love for us, that we should now be propelled to be in relationships with people. The Bible is clear about the one another's. And, and, and when you decide to love, when you decide to expose yourself, you have to be vulnerable. And we see this in the life of Jesus. When, when he's in the garden, very famous passage, and he's knowing he's about to go take the wrath and drink the wrath of all the sins of the world, but him being, being, being fully man and fully God, he invites his boys, and he says, guys, and he's transparent, he's vulnerable, he says, I'm sorrowful, even to the point of death. He's sweating blood, literally. And he says, will you pray for me? That so, so often, especially leaders, or especially mature Christians, we think it's for the weak and the young in faith to be transparent, to be vulnerable. I failed again, I failed again, I failed again. And somehow there's this weird deal, especially for me in my position as a pastor. You, you can't be vulnerable. Are you kidding me? That's how we became Christians. Be, being a Christian is to say that I can't. But in Christ Jesus, I'm starting to be able to. Growing as a Christian is saying I can't. But in Christ Jesus, I'm starting to be able to. And the way that we grow is not by hiding our flaws or saying that we don't have flaws. That's not living as a Christian. Living as a Christian is saying I need a Savior because I can't. And so there's transparency. There's vulnerability. And I will tell you this. If you're going to be transparent, if you're going to be vulnerable, be ready to have your heart broken. Be ready, like Jesus' friends, when he said to pray for me, they fell asleep on him. But yet, he still became their friends. You don't get out of community because bad things have happened. You stick around for reconciliation. You stick around because you know in a world that's broken, you're a sinner and they're a sinner. It's bound to happen. C.S. Lewis says this when it comes to being vulnerable. He says, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it up carefully, round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up in a safe, in a casket or a coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, and motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. And to be honest with you, only a place like that where a heart can only exist is in a place called hell. If we are going to respond to the incarnation, the, the, the vulnerability is with one another's, and that's why I put proximity. It's not just being vulnerable before, before God, it's being vulnerable before a community, I mean, meaning you have to be in life with people. And the means that we can live out this implication, the best means that we have is, is, is here in redemption, is redemption communities. Redemption communities are not just something I announce every day. They, they actually exist. They're people who do get together, people who are not perfect. Sometimes groups are terrible and boring, and people argue with each other, but that's called a life. Um, you have people in your group that you wish you weren't there. Not in my group, um, but there's, 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 people, there's people in your community that, that, that you're hoping that maybe they don't show up this week because when they show up, they make everything go bad. That's life. It's committing to a group of people. Um, and, and some of us, we, we have to get in there. In fact, I've only been here seven months at this, at this campus, and the best thing about this has been my community because I've been able to be loved by them. They've been able to protect me. And I've seen a lot happen so far. There's been good things that have happened, great things, and we've only been doing it for a few months. And I've also seen hard things, and I've seen people fade away. 
the, the means that we have as redemption community, it's not infallible. It's not perfect. It's not something that God spoke into existence, but it's a means in which we can say, hey, this is the best thing we have. Some of you, you need to be in community. Some of you need to be leading communities. I know it's hard for families. I meet with families. Like, we can't do it. Our kids are going to bed early, and that's true, and I get that. Maybe you should start a group that meets twice a month on a Saturday with kids. Let the kids run around and beat each other up, and you guys just worship Jesus. And then pray for your kids and healing and stuff in and that, and, and that moment. Whatever it may be. And, and, and to be a leader in a redemption community, you have to have a pulse and love Jesus. And just be an inch ahead of everybody else. That's it. You don't have to be God or, or, or none of us would be leaders. The, the second implication that we have is, is, is for it is not just to be vulnerable in proximity, but the second one is, is really, really tangible. It's when you see Jesus giving himself selflessly and you respond to that, now you serve somewhere for a long time. And the reason why I say for a long time, we happen to be in a culture and a generation for an event, we'll kick butt. Give us two days, we'll, 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 we'll kill it. But give us a year, give us two years, we'll fade away. Serve somewhere and then serve for a long time. There's two ways that we can do that. One, you can do it here. You can serve your local church. We have tons of needs. People who hand out Bibles, people who turn on lights, people who do um, the verses on the screen, people who play music, people who clean up, people who put their, I mean, there's so many things to do that you can get involved. And so I'd be foolish here not to say, here's a tangible way. If you want to serve here, just take that information card and put, Ricardo, you said to put this here and say, I want to serve. I want to serve. And just drop it in the offering box later, and then we'll email you and we'll get you serving. So serve at your local church. Join a local church. And then not only serve at your church, but serve your community. Serve your city. Bless your city. Uh, we, we don't do this so that the city around us would say that we're good, though. We do want to be a church here at Redemption that, that people would say, I, I may not believe what they believe. I may not agree with all that they do. But man, we're glad they're here. We're glad, we know for one thing, that church right there loves this city. They exist for not only their members, but they exist for those who don't even believe. Now, that's the type of church you wanna be, but not motivated like my friend from what people would say. Ultimately, because if that's it, if we just wanna be a church that people say they're cool, they're, they're, they're engaging culture, if that's it, then don't, don't sign me up. I don't want to be a part of it. If we just want to be known as the cool, hip church that young people can go to and do what they want, don't, don't sign me up. But if we're going to be a church, like the Apostle Paul says, if we're going to be a church that looks at Jesus and realizes that he took on flesh, if we're going to be a church because Christ came and he says, I promise never to leave you nor forsake you, that I will weep with you, I will cry with you, and I will die for you. If we're going to be a church in response to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, in response to that, now pour our lives for one another, and others, then sign me up. Sign me up. Sign me up all day, every day. Because if we can do it from a motivation of the gospel, now we know it's not up to us, it's not to our works, it's because of the acceptance we have in Christ, because he took on flesh, because he came, because he died, because he loved, because he still loves, and he still forgives. All I want to do is in response to that is do likewise to you, and you to me, and us to this city. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you so much for the life the example that we have that you took on flesh. That Jesus, when you entered into this world, you showed us the Father. And so how do we know the Father is because we've seen Jesus. And how do we know Jesus except that the Spirit has come upon us? God, we confess that our sins is not so much commission about what we're doing, but we have, we have a grave sin as a church and as a people and as individuals, a sin of omission. 
Lord, we, we look to ourselves, we hang out with people like us, we start fast, but we don't finish strong. And yet, Lord, you still love us. We thank you that on the cross you knew our sin and you knew that you would forgive our sin. Through the power of the resurrection, you've given us now the spirit of Christ to live out a life that is worthy of the gospel. Not to, not to gain your favor, but out of your favor. Not to gain your love, but in response to your love. That our obedience in itself, Lord, is the response to the love that you've given us. And so, God, we pray, we pray that you would begin to change us small in little ways and in big ways. God, as a, as, as a community that we would collectively come together to worship you and serve one another, to get to know the people that, that attend our church, to be able to serve them, to be able to truly, as we pray, to come alongside these families with babies, to pray for them, to pray for their salvation and their love, and also to care about them and the totality of who they are. And when they're hungry, that we would feed them. And when they're naked, that we'd clothe them. That we truly would, as Jesus did, embrace the outcast, serve the poor, and lift them up in, in, the, in ways and means that glorify your name. Jesus, as we see through the scripture, after you were obedient, even to the point of the death and death on a cross, you, you were raised to the right side of the Father, and even then you begin to serve by bringing your Father glory. We thank you for enabling us by your Spirit to give you glory. And Lord, as we, as we transition into a time where we remember you, God, in a tangible way, I pray that, that communion would be a reminder to strengthen us, Lord, to see who are the people that we are not treating important, that we should? Who are the people, Lord, that, that we have means and been blessed to bless? That, that we may just hang out a little bit longer to meet people in our community. We, we may just be transparent and vulnerable enough to step out in faith and enter into the lives of others as they entering into our lives. God, we know that it's scary, but nothing more scary than you going to the cross. And so we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.